You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. It's on page uh, 165 in the church Bibles, Leviticus chapter 20. And if you are visiting with us, this is our time where we spend uh, roughly 50 to 60 minutes in the Word of God, hearing God as He speaks to us through the Scriptures, and we typically work our way through books of the Bible. And so we are in the book of Leviticus in chapter 20, and Lord willing, we'll stop when we get to the end of chapter 27, which is the end of the book of Leviticus. But we're not there yet. My ambition this morning is to cover all of chapter 20, which may cause you to hyperventilate. But uh, I think you'll you'll see that... um, Chapter 20 is, there's really hardly anything new in chapter 20 that hasn't been seen already in chapters 18 and 19, save one thing that we'll touch on this morning. But I'm going to read chapter 20, Pastor Dale read verses 1 through 5, we'll pick it up in verse 6. As for the person who turns to mediums or spiritists to play the harlot after them. I will also set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Therefore you shall set yourselves apart as holy and be holy for I am Yahweh your God. And you shall keep my statutes and do them. I am Yahweh who makes you holy. If there is anyone who curses his father or his mother, he shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother His blood guiltiness is upon him. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, and the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. If there is a man who lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, these are ancient words that we come before this morning, ancient words that some ways seem so foreign to us, in a different culture, a different time, a different language they were first given, and yet we confess with your servant Paul that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, it's God-breathed, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, That the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us from your word this morning. Give us ears to hear. Help us to see your character, your righteousness, your holiness. Help us to see our own rebellion and sin. And help us to see the need for the Savior. And, Lord, we just say... All of this in Jesus' name, amen. One minute while I grab my notes. (laughs) Somehow I forgot them. It was some years ago I was listening to the radio. I was in Los Angeles at the time. And for whatever reason, they were doing an audio recording of the execution of a guy by the name of Tukey Williams. 
He was a leader of, I can't remember if it was the Crips or the Bloods, way back, I think in the 80s. And I remember as they were recording this, uh, it was a live recording actually of Tukey Williams being executed, how sobering it was. This man who had taken the lives of, of several individuals, probably was responsible for the killing of many more. His life was being snuffed out as I was listening. It's something of the feeling that I get as we come to Leviticus chapter 20. Because uh, we find out in Leviticus chapter 20 that while there, as I mentioned earlier, there's, there's nothing new in chapter 20 that wasn't also in chapter 18 and chapter 19, there is a little bit of a difference. In chapter 18 and 19 of Leviticus, these are what are called ap- apodictic laws, okay? You shall do this, you shall not do that. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. When we get to chapter 20, it's what you call casuistry law. Okay, namely, you see the word, or hear the word case in casuistry, case law. If somebody does this, this is what is required. If somebody does this, then this is what is required. And it's piggybacking off of everything we observed in chapters 18 and 19. And and it it is interesting because, uh, have any of you ever tried to read the Ohio Revised Code? It doesn't always make for interesting reading, right? Okay? Uh, it, it, it can be somewhat redundant. It can be boring, right? Uh, but but I, hopefully you'll be able to see that these laws that God gave thousands of years ago through Moses have, as we've been seeing, tremendous relevance to us. But But now we're also going to see the consequences that God gave to ancient Israel have relevance for us today. What we will see is, as we just walk through this passage is that Moses lays out capital crimes. Crimes for which the life of the individual was to be taken. And this isn't the only place that we see this in the, those first five books of the Bible. The book of Deuteronomy speaks of kidnapping as a capital crime, premeditated murder, adultery in Deuteronomy 22, homosexuality, blasphemy, idolatry, persistent disobedience against authority. And as you look at this chapter, there really is a, a the, these laws are, are, are kind of grouped together. Uh, in such a way that you see at the beginning there's laws that we might call religious laws against sacrificing your children to the pagan god Molech. Pastor Dale read that in the first five verses. But also in verse 6, a, a law against divination, namely uh, you know, seeking out mediums and spiritists to consult the dead. And then we also see that at the end, as a kind of bookend, to this chapter. In verse 27, there's a religious law against those practicing divination in verse 27. And then there's, there's two kind of parallel sections on exhortations to holiness 
And then right in the middle are all these laws against sexual immorality, sexual perversion. We could call them laws against the family. Laws that destroy the family. And it is interesting. So at the center of this chapter, God is concerned in, in and gives the death penalty for those sins that destroy the family. That should tell us something of how important God views the family. And it's no wonder that when Satan seeks to assault a society, he goes after the family. And so let, let's look at some of these religious crimes. So we're just going to kind of walk through <clears throat> these, these laws in verse 2, it says, You shall say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel or, uh, or from the sojourners sojourning in Israel who gives any of his seed to Moloch shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Now, we looked at this passage actually way back when we were in chapter 18. The Moloch was the pagan god and, and uh, he was the pagan god of the Ammonites in this this, uh, one of the ritual practices, as has been throughout the history of many pagan peoples, was human sacrifice, sacrifice of children. And God said, if anybody does this, his life shall be taken. In verse 6, if any, as for the persons who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will set my face against that person. I will cut him off from among his people. And then as I alluded to earlier, the end of the chapter in verse 27, not those who seek out mediums or spiritists, but those who practice in verse 27. Now a man or a woman who is a medium uh, or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. And then there's exhortations to holiness. The first one is in verse 7 and 8. Therefore you shall set yourselves apart and be holy, for I am Yahweh, that covenant name of God. I am Yahweh your God, and you shall keep my statutes and do them. I am Yahweh who makes you holy. So God's calling his people to be different than those pagan nations that surrounded them. And those pagan, the pagan nation of Egypt, where they had come from in the Exodus. And the pagan nations who had been inhabiting the promised land to which they were going. And then in verse 22 through 26, a similar exhortation. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and do them. So that the land to which I am bringing you to inhabit will not vomit you out. Moreover, you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I cast out before you. For they did all these things. Therefore I have loathed them. Hence I have said to you... You yourselves shall possess the land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am Yahweh your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You are therefore to, to separate between the clean animal and the unclean, between the unclean bird and the clean. You shall not make for yourself detestable by any animal, by bird, or anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean, thus you shall be holy to me, for I am Yah for I Yahweh am holy, and have separated you from the peoples to be mine. So here again, this parallel. God tells his people, You're to be holy, you're to be separate 
from the rest of these pagan nations. You're not to do the things that they do, whether it's, as we saw, those unclean laws and the practices, or whether it's in the immoral uh, lifestyle of those around you, all the sexual immoralities that preceded. And then in verses 9 through 21, we won't go through all of it. You can read all those incest laws in your family devotions. In verses 9 through 21, there's this law against cursing parents, capital crime, against adultery. Verse 10, incest laws are in verse 11 uh, through 14. Law against homosexuality, verse 13, if there's any man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death. And so what we see here is the severity of these sins as evidenced by the fact that one's life was to be taken in these instances. The manner of the taking of life, there's, there's three different, actually four different punishments that are mentioned throughout this section. One is stoning, which a person's life would be taken by throwing large rocks at their head. Doesn't seem like a pleasant way to die. Another is mentioned through burning, which is two different interpretations. The kind of traditional rabbinical Jewish interpretation was the the pouring of hot lead down one's throat. Uh, The other was that it was stoning and then your body, your remains were burned afterwards, which happens in the book of Joshua, I think, with Achan's family. And then there's the the punishment of being cut off, which is an interesting one that that comes in the context of of when one's family, when, when, when others are not basically willing to testify in the crime that one commits of this idolatrous child sacrifice, God says, I myself will set my face against them and cut them off. And so it seems the, uh, the idea of being cut off from God's people even eternally. And then there's the, the punishment of being childless. So these, these are severe punishments here. Now, obviously... We don't live in ancient Israel under this kind of theocracy where God is the king. But I don't want us to quickly dismiss these commands as outdated. This is the word of God that when God did run the civil government, these were the standards by which people were to abide. And they were given for good purpose. One commentator, Derek Tidball, says, crimes against people are treated with greater seriousness. So one of the interesting things is when you look at this kind of law code that we see here in Leviticus 20 and compare it with the law codes of other countries around Israel, you find some interesting things. that, That namely, crimes against people were treated with greater seriousness than crimes against property. In Israel, the death penalty was mandatory for murder, whereas in other cultures, it could be commuted by mere monetary compensation. In contrast, the Israel-Babylonian law prescribed the death penalty for crimes against property 
crimes of breaking and entering, theft and looting. So you could die in, in the surrounding cultures, be executed if you stole something. But it wasn't always the death penalty if you took the life of another. You could actually pay a fine for that, which I think is important because it, it helps us to see the backdrop of Leviticus is, is the book of Genesis, is the Torah, where human life is of the utmost value, value, right? Because human life are people made in the image of God. And if you take another human life, it's the highest punishment. Also, in Israel, it was not permissible for a substitute to bear the punishment for a crime as it was elsewhere. So, evidently, in the ancient, in the ancient world, if you stole something, uh, let's say if you're an ancient Ammonite and you stole your neighbor's lawnmower, uh, you could have the death penalty against you. But then you could say, well, why don't you take my son instead or my daughter? And you could substitute yourself with somebody else. Um, which might have been good for you, not so much for your child. Um, but you couldn't do that in ancient Israel. You couldn't, that, that there was laws that, uh, you know, children would not bear the, the iniquity of their fathers, okay? That each one was responsible for his own sin. Also, thirdly, the primary objective of the law was to reconcile parties in dispute and to do so by requiring restitution rather than imposing fines or imprisonment. Even where an offender was sentenced to corporal punishment, it was restricted so as to preserve the dignity of the guilty one. In other words, when it came to property laws in Israel, we saw this with the, the guilt offering, restitution was to be made, okay? Which I think we could learn a lot from laws in our culture uh, you know, instead of, you know, locking them up, force them to get a job and to pay back what they owe. Uh, that, that would be a lot more productive. So, l- let me just give, again, it's, it can be tempting to see these laws as outdated and silly. Certainly, the, the, the world around us that does not believe in the Bible as the Word of God is going to mock and scoff these kinds of laws. So let me just give a a quick defense of these laws, not necessarily saying they are to be instituted as law in our country, but as part of God's holy word. First of all, most states in this country have had laws dealing with these offenses. In fact, some still today. Uh, in fact, historically in this country, all 50 states have had laws against adultery. Before the year 2003, the Supreme, Kate, Supreme Court case, Lawrence versus Texas, there had been laws in various states against Sodomy against homosexuality. And it was in that Supreme Court decision in 2003 that the Supreme Court decided that it was unconstitutional for the state of Texas to have a law against homosexuality. Now where they got that in the Constitution, 
I have no idea because when the Constitution was ratified, all 13 colonies had anti-sodomy laws in them. So clearly the authors of the Constitution were not thinking that there shouldn't be these laws. So that was just 2003. Most states today have laws against incest. That was in chapter 20. Did you notice that? In fact, Ohio is one of the few states that does not have incest laws. So next time you want to make a joke about West Virginia or Kentucky, you make a mental note of that. They have laws against incest. Ohio doesn't. And so, and then also recently, the state of Ohio, I didn't read this law, but there's a law here in chapter 20 against bestiality. We saw it in chapter 18. There are laws, there's a law actually in the state of Ohio against bestiality that was recently passed. So again, uh, you know, while I understand some of these laws are quickly dismissed, historically, this country has had laws very similar. They weren't necessarily all capital crimes, but there have been laws in society to restrain evil. Now, I understand somebody might say, well, you know, this is the same country that, that uh, had chattel slavery, and this is why, you know, we're so enlightened today, and we need to move beyond those laws. Well, I guess I would just say in the words of Dr. Phil, how's that working out for you? I mean, as we have shed all, uh, some of these laws, has it helped promote marriage and intact families and things of that sort? Not so much. Not so much. But also, I would say, by what standard? By what say, if, if you think that, that, that anti-sodomy laws or, or laws against bestiality or laws against adultery are, are so awful, by what standard do you say that? How do you know what's right and what's wrong? What is your standard of morality? Because ultimately, once you abandon the God of Christianity, you're left with mere opinions. You don't like something, or you like something, but that's all you have. Well, you may say, well, well, that's where we go by governments to decide these things for us. Really? I mean, what did they decide in Nazi Germany in the 1930s? As they sought to extinguish certain people groups. Was it right because the government said it was right? I mean, yes, I, I understand we live in a culture that, 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 want, that, that many people in our culture want the government to be the transcendent authority by fiat to declare what is right and wrong. But any civil government is subject to God as the ultimate, ultimate governor. God is the standard of what's right and what's wrong. In any culture, any society, any nation would do well as much as they can to align civil law with God. 
and his standards of righteousness. I mean, let me simply ask the question, why is child pornography wrong? Why is human trafficking wrong? Now, hopefully, you, everybody in this room agrees those are wrong. But upon what basis would you say those things are wrong? What justification do you have for saying those things are wrong? Do you have a moral authority that goes beyond the mere opinions of man? And this is where we as Christians stand. We say, with the prophet Isaiah, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, they have no light in them. Ultimately, God, as he speaks to us through his word, he gives us the standard of what is right and what is wrong. Some may say, well... You know, this is, this is all Old Testament stuff. You know, in the New Testament, I mean, Jesus would never, never endorse this kind of stuff. You sure about that? How sure are you about that? After all, in Mark chapter 7, verse 10, Jesus actually quotes... From Leviticus 20, probably the command that gave some of you young people a lump in your throat, the one that says, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. That's Mark, New Testament, Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verse 10, Jesus quoting Leviticus chapter 20. Now, also, when you turn to Romans chapter 13, as Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and when we get to the New Testament, obviously we're not dealing with Israel as a theocracy where God is the government, but uh, you know we're dealing with churches and in Romans chapter 13, verse 3 and 4, it says, For rulers, it's talking about the civil government. The civil government, which these churches in Rome were subject to. The, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have fear of that, of that authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, that is the civil government is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword in vain. It, the government, does not bear the sword in vain. The sword for what? To cut up its bagel? No. The sword as wielding it for the purposes of execution. It does not bear the sword in vain. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, obviously, that's not to say that government always gets it right. They don't, right? I, I mentioned, I don't know if it was last week or I think it was Christmas morning, that in the 
20, 20th century, 170 million people were murdered by the hands of their own governments. Okay? And so, biblically, there's always a tension between, if you remember the 13, you'll remember this right, Romans 13 and Revelation 13. Revelation 13, you can read about the beast, okay? The beast and his opposition to the people of God. And so we need to live with those tensions, understanding that there is an authority that goes higher than the civil government authority. But nonetheless, for our purposes, I want you to understand that God has given civil authority to be a servant of God to restrain evil. And part of that is to use the sword to have certain crimes that are capital crimes to restrain evil. And not only that, when you get to the New Testament, while you're not dealing with a theocracy where God is the, you know, is organizing the government and whatnot, you're dealing with churches that are subjecting themselves to earthly governments. You do realize that when it comes to many of these crimes or these sins, these rebellions that we see in Leviticus chapter 20, that the punishment for these, if unrepentant, is not mere physical death, but is what? Eternal death. Eternal punishment. And so, for instance, if you listen to Revelation 21, verse 8, John writes, But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers, sound familiar, and idolaters, sound familiar, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And so when we get to the New Testament, the punishment for these same sins, if unrepentant, is eternal damnation, hell forever, not mere physical execution. Same thing, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived that neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But, you know, verse 11 continues, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So again, by the time we get to the New Testament, the punishment, dare I say, is far worse. Another objection might be, well, this just seems so contrary to the grace of God. I mean, all these capital crimes in Leviticus 20. But when we go back to the beginning of the book, the Bible... God said to Adam and Eve, 
You can eat from any tree in the garden, but in 2.17 of Genesis, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. From the day you eat of it, you shall what? Surely die. In other words, it was a capital crime to eat from the tree that God forbade them to eat from. In other words, any rebellion and any disobedience is a capital crime. And so the fact that God didn't make every sin a capital offense is merciful. One more thing I'll just say along these lines. Remember that God is the standard of justice. Prisoners in prison always cry file. The guilty always cry file. Those who are the criminals always want a different standard of righteousness. It is not up to us and our pea brains to, to, to conjure up what is the standard of righteousness. It is God the Almighty who sets the standard of righteousness. And He teaches us that rebellion against Him is a serious offense. And under the Old Testament economy, many of them were capital offenses. In the New Testament, we don't take our kids out to the backyard and stone them for dishonoring us, although some of you would like to. But what it does teach us, and this is what I want us to take home, there's three important applications. First of all, This should teach us to take sin seriously. Take sin seriously. I mean, did did you see that, you know, to be stoned with stones, to be burned with fire, to be cut off, to be childless. These are severe consequences. And and, and often the severity of consequences does teach us and help us to understand something of the seriousness of the offense. I've used this illustration before. I've borrowed it from Jonathan Edwards. But, you know, if you see a, a sibling, a, a brother, shove his sister, what kind of consequences might there be? Well, they may get a couple swats. They may get grounded. They may get privileges taken away of. Well, imagine if somebody, a child, shoves their parent. Now it's a little bit more serious consequences, right? Now imagine somebody shoves a police officer. There's going to be more serious consequences. Imagine if the President of the United States is holding a press conference and somebody does an open field tackle on Joseph Biden. They're probably going to be in Guantanamo Bay somewhere and you're not going to hear from them for a long, long time. 
because the, 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 the consequences, the punishment, often highlight the seriousness of the offense and, dare I say, even the dignity of the person sinned against. And so ultimately, all sins, all crimes are against God and against His institution and His ways. And, and these sins, in particularly the idolatry, the sacrifice of children to Molech, the sexual immoralities that utterly decimate the family, these sins, these, these are what God says, these are against me. And you need to take these things seriously. Andrew Bonar, I mentioned him last week. He says, but what of a land, what a land of sin. Its cities and its plains crying up to heaven. Children cursing their parents. Neighbors and relatives living in adultery with each other. The son dishonors the bed of his stepmother. The father-in-law that of his daughter-in-law. Men burn in unnatural lust. And the same man takes mother and daughter as his wives. Men and women go to their beasts to gratify their lusts. Brothers disregard the holy ties that forbade him approach to sisters and stepsisters, aunts and brothers, wives, in short, all relations in turn seem only to fuel, uh, to only be fuel to lust, which consumes the fence and rages till it expires in its own indulgence. And yet, dare I say, with any of these sins, are not the seeds of these sins in the hearts of every one of us? That it might not, you may not be actively engaged in full-blown adultery or full-blown incest or homosexuality, but the seed form of any of those sins exists even in the hearts of the redeemed. That left unchecked and left to grow and fester and thrive that would soon take over the heart. And one could find themselves engaged in it. And so this is why God's people need to mortify the deeds of the body as the Apostle Paul says. To put to death sin in their life. To see the seriousness of any one of our sins merits eternal damnation. Any one of our sins is an offense against the Holy God, the King of Israel. This is also why sin, not to be taken seriously, public sin within and amongst God's people. Jesus left his church with the instructions in Matthew 18, 15 and following. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That God gave instructions for 
his own people, that when someone is unrepentant, unwilling to turn, that there are, there's a certain procedure, there's a kind of a due process to try to restore them back to the Lord. But if they refuse that restoration, then the process continues. Friend, have you made a truce with sin in your life? Have you grown accustomed to it? Or do you secretly nurse and coddle it? God is calling you to a different standard this morning. To turn, turn away from it, turn to Him. He is a God of mercy and forgiveness. But He does not want you to continue to remain in that state of rebellion. But not only to take sin seriously, but to tremble. Tremble at the severity of God's holy justice. There should be a holy fear in our hearts as we read a passage like this. That were we to live in these times that certain things that we may have engaged in would have required our death. This should cause us to fear the Lord. Now, I understand in many of our Reformed tradition circles, we're apprehensive of embracing a kind of Arminian view of the Christian life where fear becomes the dominating factor of the Christian life. And and what I mean by that is, you know, well, you know, if I do this, I'm going to lose my salvation and God's going to turn his back on me. And, 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 and hopefully we understand the scriptures better than that, that God is a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his own. But nonetheless, we should not be averse to the reality of fear as a legitimate and one of the dominating motives of the Christian life. Not fear in the sense of fear of losing one's salvation, but fear in the sense of a holy reverence for Almighty God. That He is a God of righteousness. That He's God. I mean, if I really believed that this God is who He says He is, how much more reverence and fear would I have for Him in His life? That He wouldn't be the butt of jokes. How much more seriously would I read my Bible? Would I even talk to Him? And we see, the, we see the prophet Isaiah, who is the most righteous man probably on planet earth at that time. And in Isaiah chapter 6, he has this vision of Yahweh of hosts in the temple. And there's a seraphim with their six wings. And they're crying out, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And Isaiah says, God is my homeboy. No, that's not what he says. He says, woe is me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. His face is on the ground as he sees 
the dignity and the majesty of God. And I understand where none of us in this room are prophets having a vision of Yahweh of hosts like Isaiah did. But as we read and see him in the scriptures and as he reveals himself to us, there should be a holy reverence for him. As we see the weightiness of the penalties of these crimes in the ancient world, there should be a holding of our hands over our mouth and saying, Oh God, I need your forgiveness and mercy. Oh God, you are God who is serious about rebellion. Joel Beakey says, the fear of God must beautify and vivify our theology. Too often man distorts the doctrine of God to create a God in his own image. The result is a banal but comfortable theology for sinners, marked by doctrinal error and practical irreverence. Martin Luther said to Desiderius Erasmus, your thoughts of God are all too human. Let us follow the Holy Scriptures to an awe-inspiring view of the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. And again, even as we see these punishments and we read through the rest of the Bible and see the reality of eternal punishment, is that which awaits those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the severity of God's judgment. And I understand this is not, this is not popular stuff. This is not you know, going to win you the you know, best-selling book in the evangelical world. But, but there is an impulse in each of our hearts towards justice. Right? I mean, we want wrongs to be righted. When we, when we hear of some awful crime, we want somebody to pay for that. The reality is, is that we just don't want ourselves to pay for our own cosmic crimes against the deity. And so we invent light views of God. We invent a God who's He's nice, you know. He gets along with others. God who's, well, just like me. After all, he should be, right? But the God of the Scripture is a God who's holy, righteous, a God to be revered. Andrew Bonar again says, What sins are here? What sounds of the stroke of the sword of wrath put to death? Put their blood be upon them, burnt with fire, cut off from the sight of their people, that all may see and fear like witnesses of Babylon's destruction, cut off from their people, driven out of holy fellowship, dying childless, some left as living monument of wrath, Seen by all like a leafless, fruitless tree which the lightning of God has blasted. Many are the arrows in his quiver, shot even on earth upon transgressions. What then when his bow is made ready? Friends, we should tremble before God's holy justice. But thirdly, 
not only to take sin seriously, tremble before his holy justice, trust the substitute Savior. Hopefully you've been uncomfortable for the past 47 minutes. Now, let me give you some hope. Because isn't it interesting that we see all these different capital crimes here and the form of execution varies. One is uh, through stoning, another through fire, another just kind of more ambiguous being cut off. And when the great champion, the promised Savior of this world comes to this earth, this one whom Gabriel instructed Joseph, you shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, that he lives a perfect life. He never curses Joseph and Mary. He never engages in any kind of sexual immoralities. He never engages in any kind of idolatrous worship, even though Satan comes to him and tries to get him to bow down and worship to him with the promise that he would give him the nations of this world. Instead, this Lord Jesus perfectly obeys. But then, he is falsely accused First by the Jewish people who trump up charges against him. Then they hand him over to the Romans because at that time the Jewish people did not have the authority to to carry out the form of punishment of execution by themselves. So they hand them over to Pontius Pilate, hand Jesus over to Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate looks at Jesus and he finds no guilt in him. But there's been all kinds of riots as of late. And he doesn't want the people to be in an uproar. The people are crying out for his blood. Chanting, crucify him. Crucify him. And so Pilate acquiesces. He orders him to be flogged. And the people still aren't content with that. So then he orders him to be executed. Not in the Jewish form of execution by stoning or by fire, but on a Roman cross. The most agonizing form of execution known to man at that time, where one would have nails driven through hands and feet, suspended between heaven and earth on a, on a stick, left to die a long, agonizing grueling death. But he was innocent. He committed no crimes, neither under Jewish law nor under Roman law. But he was being punished not for his own cosmic treason, but for the sins of others. He would say in Mark 10.45 For the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul who 
existing in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and took the form of a slave being found in appearance as a man, and he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. On a cross. Public execution. Not for his own sins, but for your sins, for my sins, for the sins of anyone who would ever believe. He laid down his life. And it wasn't merely the physical execution, somehow in the wonder and mystery of the crucifixion. He was bearing the full weight of God's judgment, the eternity of hell in his body on that cross for some three hours suspended between heaven and earth that he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friend, that is your only hope to stand before this God. If you're sitting here this morning... Perhaps you've crafted a God in your own image. A God who's quite accommodating, quite tolerant to any kind of sin. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God of righteousness. And yes, it it sounds severe. And it is severe because God has a holy, righteous standard that is inflexible. But He's also good and kind and merciful. And so He's so kind that He sent His Son to die And he rose from the dead. And now he offers full forgiveness and full pardon. There's a plea deal on the table. That if you would but come to Jesus, turn to him in faith, trust in what Jesus did on the cross on your behalf, and you turn to him and you make him your king, your Lord. And you say, Jesus, you're the boss now. You will take... Your sentence of guilt. And he will rip it up. Say full pardon. My son paid for that crime. Friend, trust in Jesus. Don't delay. Turn to him. Let's pray.